Let us pray to get us started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word in the Bible. We thank you that every element of scripture points to your son, Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for David, that he wrote this psalm, and that you give us a rich insight here to the nature of our position before you, of our weakness and your immense strength. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, speak powerfully uh, this morning, uh, that you'd touch people's hearts, all of our hearts, and that we'd be transformed in the likeness of your son, uh, that uh, we'd have a renewed strength uh, to, uh, to deal with a, um, the difficult world in which we live. And we um, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, can I ask a question to start us off? Um, what do you want out of life? And for parents among us here, what do you wish for your children in life? Well, consistently over time, surveys reveal that the number one thing that people want out of life and that parents want for their children is happiness, uh, to, be, to be happy. Uh, one global study published in 2015 asked the question, what are the three most important goals that you want your child to achieve as an adult. Um, the number one response was happiness. You see it on the screen. Maybe a little bit hard to read, but I'll just walk us through it. In Australia, 77% of respondents included happiness as one of the three most important goals for their children. And you can see the other goals mentioned by respondents are factors that are considered to contribute to a happy or fulfilling life. Earning enough money to enjoy a comfortable life, 41% of respondents. Children fulfilling their potential, 40%. Leading a healthy lifestyle, 34%. And then being successful in one's career, 17%. And the study goes on to show that lying behind most of these goals is the desire for a good education. A solid university degree is seen to underpin these other things, a successful career, high earnings and fulfilled potential. And I guess really, like none of that's very uh, surprising, uh, is it? But I do think it's interesting to acknowledge a common element that sits behind all these perceived keys uh, to happiness. All of them suggest the need to gain and to exercise personal strength or power in some way or another in order to have a good life. So think, for example, of living a healthy lifestyle. The goal is to be physically strong. Or the aim of education. It's for us to be intellectually strong and then have the power to be productive. And then... key reason to chase a successful career is to achieve financial independence and security. They're all forms of personal strength that we seek to attain or that we wish for our children to attain. And the thing is, and we take it for granted, but we live in a culture that is absolutely saturated in the ethos of power. It really is the very air that we breathe. And I think like a goldfish in a bowl, but we don't recognise the water that we're, we're swimming in. It's just, we're just there. 
And it seems that almost everyone wants to be stronger, wants to be more powerful. And it's a culture where the rules are really quite simple. First, gain what power you can. And second, hold on to it for as long as possible. Now, of course, it is natural to want to be stronger rather than weaker, isn't it? I mean, we all would rather be strong rather than weak. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with having power. And all of these things, all of these sorts of power, they're gifts from God. Good health, solid education, opportunities to use our gifts at work, in God's service, financial prosperity, all good things that come from a good God. But the thing is that seeing us achieve these things just isn't what's most important to God. And they aren't the keys to being blessed by God either. So we're going to turn to Psalm 41 today and see that God's concerns are quite different. And blessing comes as we align our lives and priorities with his will. So let's turn to Psalm 41. Uh, It's on page 878 of the Pew Bibles. And as background, uh, we can see that there is no one in Israel who has known greater power and strength than David. You'll remember it was David who slayed the mighty warrior uh, Goliath with a sling. And even before David became king, songs were written about his military conquests. His victories were greater than those of his predecessor, King Saul. And then in time, David was anointed by God and chosen to be the king over the whole of Israel. So he was a man who knew great strength. And this psalm was written about David by him. So we see that as we read in the psalm's title. For the director of music, a psalm of David. And so we come to the first of three sections in today's psalm. And in the first section, David sings of how God cares for those who have a heart for the weak. He sings that they are the ones who will be blessed. When they are low, God will rescue them. And David knows that God himself cares for the weak, that he lifts up the lowly. And David knows that because that's precisely been his experience. See, David was the youngest of eight children, of eight brothers. He was a lowly shepherd boy when God chose him to slay Goliath and eventually put him on the path to be king. And David's confident that as God's heart is for the weak, that he's going to bless those who take on God's concern for the weak. God's going to protect them from their foes and he's going to carry them through illness. And this has been David's experience too. God has protected him. So David doesn't feel like he has to seek his own happiness. God is looking after him. And David knows that God will bless him. So let's start and we'll read from verse 1. Blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord delivers them in times of trouble. 
And David continues to flesh that out in the following verses, explaining how it is that God blesses those who care for the weak. So continuing at verse 2. The Lord protects and preserves them. They are counted among the blessed in the land. He does not give them over to the desire of their foes. The Lord sustains them on their sickbed and restores them from their bed of illness. So we go on to the second section of the psalm. And right away, there's a twist. Because we discover that David himself is the one who's fallen from his position of strength as Israel's king. David, from his position of strength, has become one of the weak. And he's experiencing times of troubles. He's the one who's under attack from his foes. And he's the one who's suffering on his sickbed. And David explains the reason. Although David's heart is aligned with God, he's sinned. And because of that, he's been struck down by some undisclosed illness. Now that his power is gone, David knows that he has to rely on God's mercy and he has to rely on God's strength. Only God can heal him of his sin and of his illness. And so he prays. We're at verse 4. I said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And again, in the second section, David goes on to provide more information about the situation. He explains that he is extremely vulnerable. He's seriously ill. And his enemies who have been waiting and now swooping in, and they're moving in to take advantage of David's dire position. They want to see his life ended, and they want to see his name destroyed. In effect, they want to see David obliterated. And we read that from verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one of them comes to see me, he speaks falsely, while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it around. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. And then David concludes the second section of the psalm with the tragic recognition that one of his closest friends has joined with his enemies. Trusted friend has betrayed David and now wants to see him dead and buried. Verse 9, we read, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And it seems that this opposition that David's experiencing has a sort of inevitability about it. Because David is God's king. We know he's a man after God's own heart. He has regard for the weak. He doesn't crave power in his status or in his rank. But it's David's enemies who are evil, who are lying in wait. Their hearts are filled with malice and they want to see David overthrown. They're the ones who crave power. So we see this clash, this clash of worldviews coming into conflict. 
of David with a heart for God and God's ways and his enemies who crave power, the ways of of our world. And so we come to the third and the final section of the psalm. And we see David praying confidently to God to be restored to health and power. He knows that only God has the power to forgive him. And only God can raise him from his sickbed. And only God can give him back the power he needs to perform his sovereign role as king in exacting justice against his enemies. And so we read in verse 10. But may you have mercy on me, Lord. Raise me up that I may repay them. And then David goes on to explain the grounds for his confidence. Despite David's sin, God remains pleased with him. You see, through everything, David still maintained his fundamental integrity and his faithful dependence on God. In fact, his reliance on God's mercy to forgive him is a demonstration of his faithfulness of his faith in God. And so David is confident of the result. He will be saved from his enemies and he will be forgiven. David is confident that God will preserve his life. God is going to uphold David and raise him to be in in God's presence forever. So we read on from verse 11. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy enemy does not triumph over me. Because of my integrity, you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. And so finally, David sings out to the Lord in praise. Verse 13. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So, that's Psalm 41. You see what's here. David is God's chosen king, a man after God's own heart. He declares that God is going to bless those who have regard for the weak. But David reveals that he himself now has become one of the weak. Through his sin, he has fallen. David's enemies are opposed to God's king and to God's ways. So they've swooped in to attack David when he's down. But David remains confident that God's going to recognise his integrity and he'll lift him up. God is going to deliver him from his position of weakness and bless him once again. So this morning, I'd like to look at two ways that we can take this passage and apply it to our lives today. The first is to have a look at how it is that we can and we should regard the weak today, how we should do that. And the second is to look to the source of true strength and to see how it is that we can attain to that from our position of weakness. So firstly then, God calls us to share his regard for the weak. It's unambiguous. And it should be a defining characteristic of every Christian's life. 
So today, I'd just like us to focus on two ways that we can and we should show God's love to those who are weak. Firstly, we should be prepared to speak up. In the book of Proverbs, we read... Sorry, we've skipped a slide. Back. Yeah, sorry, it's the next one. Sorry, thanks. In the book of Proverbs, we read, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. And for us... This will certainly mean speaking out on behalf of people we know who cannot speak up for themselves. Do you know anyone who you could help by speaking out on their behalf? Is there someone weaker than you that you could defend by exercising the power that God has given you? And most of us have the sorts of power that we've been talking about, good education, financial strength, the ability to be able to articulate. There are so many around us who do not. More broadly, we have the opportunity to defend the rights of the poor and needy. And there are so many avenues that are open to us today in our connected world. Here's just a few. I'm sure you can think of others. We can write to our local politicians and we can set up meetings with them to uh, to speak with us so we can express our perspective. We can write to newspapers. We can sign petitions. And we can become more actively involved by participating directly in some of the groups who seek to care for the needy and to look after their interests. There are so many around us who are weak, poor and needy. Just think, unborn babies, children with gender dysphoria, such a hot topic today, Uh, the seriously ill and dying, those who seek refuge uh, from their life in war-torn countries overseas. Really, as Christians, all of us should actively be trying to find the way that God would have us participate so that we can help the weak and the marginalised in our world, those who we know and those who we don't know too. And the second way we should be caring for the weak is kind of the obvious way, by providing some amount of financial support. Our generosity should reflect God's generosity to us. And friends, God has been so generous to us, hasn't he? And he gives us the freedom now. We're free to be extravagantly generous as we respond to his grace to us in Jesus. Now, obviously, this is going to mean something different for each of us. But while striving to be wise, we should err, don't you think, on the side of generosity. We shouldn't fall into the trap of giving wisely only to those who we think will deserve it, deserve it, and that's not God's way in the way that he's treated us. Or to those, only give to those who we are sure are going to make use of good, good use of whatever we give. 
You know that in Australia, one of the most common reasons people don't give to charities is because they're not sure that the money will be used wisely. For those of us who are wealthy, it really is incumbent on us to pray and to do whatever is necessary to determine where we will direct financial support. So if we go back a couple of slides, sorry, there we go. Here's a simple tool that Alison and I um, have found helpful over the last few years, so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, each year we look at opportunities in these four areas. Uh, it's very simple, which is sort of the reason why we find it helpful. Um, we look at the areas of mission or evangelism <clears throat> and the area of aid, and we look at them locally and overseas. So we, d we just pray about how much uh, we think... Uh, we should give for local evangelistic work, for overseas evangelism, for local aid and for global aid. So I think you know, something like that is a helpful uh, tool as, as we think through where God would have us uh, direct our funds. Some of it, of course, we can give through the life of the church. There are opportunities in most, of, not all of those areas here um, at Chatswood Presbyterian Church, but there are so many other areas we can help. We live in a world that is in need. But it's important too that, to recognise that like David, opposition is going to be inevitable for us. It is the impact when two worlds collide. It was so obvious last year with the poll on same-sex marriage. In recent times, simply expressing the biblical perspective on sex and marriage has been labelled as hate speech. I mean, that's something that's only happened probably in the last five years, maybe, that that's, that's happened. And it's going to continue. It will continue as we deal with other issues. Now, with the issues of how gender is defined, the issue of abortion continues, euthanasia and the treatment of asylum seekers many other issues too. And of course, whenever we speak of Jesus and of God's wisdom, we have to reflect God's love in the way that we speak. But the differences are stark between God's ways and the ways of this world. The world around us is inherently hostile to God and his ways, his will for his people. Just like David, as we bear witness faithfully to God in the world around us, we're going to see opposition arise. And it may be even within our closest circle of family and friends. Possibly even among our Christian brothers and sisters. Even as we are swayed by the ruling paradigm of power and strength, we're called to hold strong and to continue to speak up. So lastly, let's turn to the question of where it is that we can find true strength and ultimately where we can find true blessing. And this is so important because all of us are tempted in this world to think we can be happy by building positions of strength, even when the evidence shows that it isn't true. So one part of our mind will think, yeah, that's, that's right, I'm weak, 
I need to depend upon God. And at the same time, we're actively from day to day chasing after strength and building up, shoring up our positions. To a greater or lesser extent, we all lose touch with that reality. So here's an extreme example. A job applicant was asked, what would you consider to be your main strengths and weaknesses? Well, he began, my main weakness would definitely be my issues with reality. Sometimes I have a little trouble telling what's real and what's not. Okay, said the interviewer, and what are your strengths? I'm Batman. <laughs> now, now, of course, it's true that most of us aren't really like this guy. Um, we all have resources. We have real resources of physical strength, intellectual strength, and financial strength. But beneath those, we're all vulnerable. We're all vulnerable, just like David. Like David, we're prone to physical illness. And unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die. Spiritually, we're constantly prone to sin. And intellectually, we're prone to foolishness, doing things our own way or conceding to the ways of the world. We're all prone to fall in line with what the world around us tells us is important. We all succumb. We all seek positions of strength and we fight to hold on. We are weak, brothers and sisters. We need one who has true strength. We need one who has true integrity. And there is, there is one who is truly strong and who has shown true integrity. One who provides the perfect index of reality. David was king of Israel. He had a heart for God. But he was still a sinner like you and me. But Jesus, Jesus is the all-powerful, everlasting king over the whole of creation. And although he is infinitely strong, Jesus held nothing back when he regarded those who were weak. When he regarded us. Because in our sin, we are absolutely powerless to help ourselves. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul put it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It was because of Jesus' regard for us in our weakness that he left God's side in heaven, became man and died on the cross. It was to save us from our pitiful weakness, our sin, that he gave his life for ours. And then Jesus faces inevitable opposition. Although without sin, he took on our sin and allowed his enemies to persecute and to kill him. Jesus was always on a collision path with the local authorities, with the Jews and the Romans. Because his ways undermined, fundamentally undermined, the legitimacy of his enemies who were grappling for power. So his enemies plotted, 
They spoke falsely about him. They slandered Jesus and they misrepresented him and his words. And even his close friend Judas, someone he trusted, one who shared his bread, turned against him. Jesus had called Judas to follow him. Judas had been with him for three years, walking, listening to the words of the Son of God. Jesus had shown only love to Judas. He'd washed Judas' feet. But through all this, Jesus remains confident that God the Father will protect and preserve him. He has unshakable confidence that God will raise him again after he's died on the cross. And he knows that he will rise to judge the world that has opposed him, his enemies. And he looks forward to being set in the Father's presence forever. He's the perfect fulfilment of Psalm 41. Now, if you're here today and you have not placed your trust in Jesus, please come and speak to, to one of us, to Warren or me, or you can find one of the elders. None of us can depend on our own strength or integrity for our salvation. There's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. We need to put our faith in Jesus. It's only because of his sacrifice on the cross, his life for ours, that any of us can be saved. We have to rely on his power. We have to rely on his integrity, his perfection, not our own. Because he's the only one who is truly strong. And he's the only one who can save us. But for those of us who have experienced God's mercy in Jesus, how can we not strive to serve him faithfully from day to day? In his letter to the Romans, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And it's Jesus, it's Jesus who provides that perfect model of the attitude we should adopt as we go about caring for the weak. He serves as the perfect example of humble submission to God, offering his body as a living sacrifice. But the thing is, friends, the ways of this world are compelling and we are weak. And there's only one way then for us to overcome and to live for God. Here's the next verse in Paul's letter. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. You see, it's only as we immerse ourselves in a different worldview, in the right worldview, in the true worldview, Jesus' worldview, that our minds are going to be renewed. So the first step is for us to fix our eyes on him, on Jesus, every day. The pattern of this world is too much a part of us already. So to loosen the world's grip on us, 
we have to learn to see things as God does. As we place our focus on Jesus, God is going to transform our minds so that we can understand his will for our lives. And friends, God has given us every resource that we need. We have God's living word in the Bible constantly pointing us to Jesus. And he's given us one another. Here on Sundays and through midweek Bible studies, we have one another to spur each other on. But at the bottom of it, we have to recognise that we are weak. We have to engage with that, our fundamental weakness, and recognise that God is strong. And here, here finally, is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Ultimately, we can gain true strength. But it comes only once we've acknowledged the extent of our weakness and put our faith in God and his strength. Only then will we become strong. In another letter, uh, Paul wrote to the Corinthians these amazing words. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There really is no point in our striving for happiness and fulfilment by relying on the positions of strength and power we achieve in this world. They're just a mirage. Praise God that he is all-powerful, that his power is eternal, and that he showers his blessings upon us who are so very weak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you help us to see Jesus more clearly? Help us to find in him all our strength. Lord, by your spirit, transform our hearts and renew our minds so that we no longer conform with the patterns of this world. Soften us to the needs of others, of those who are weaker. Give us the resolve to speak up for the poor and needy and show each of us how you would have us extend practical love to those in greatest need, here in our church family and beyond. Give us courage as we face opposition. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus every day of our lives. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.